0: The story goes of a family from the deep south in America in the 1930s who travelled to see New York and they were amazed by all that they saw. See, they lived in a a log cabin and travelled by foot or by horse. But suddenly they were surrounded by cars and buses, by tall buildings and streetlights. Everything was new to them. And it was inside a hotel lobby that the father watched in amazement. As an elderly lady pressed a button next to some silver doors set into the wall. Well, they slid open and she stepped inside. She pressed another button inside that he couldn't quite see and the doors closed. Well, just seconds later, there was a ping and the doors opened and out stepped a blonde bombshell. (laughs) By this stage, the father's jaw was on the floor. He turned to his son and said, quick, go get your mother. Well, this morning, we are looking at one of the most striking transformations in history. Because 1 Samuel chapter 7 is like a rerun of chapter 4, uh, both about a battle between the Israelites and the Philistines, both ending in slaughter, in both the Lord bringing defeat and victory, both at a place called Ebenezer, and yet they're totally different. Because for God's people, we see defeat transformed into victory. We see pride transformed into humility. We see sinfulness transformed into repentance. We see half-heartedness transformed into commitment. We see idolatry transformed into true worship. We see despair transformed into hope. And here's the thing. For you and I, today, for us as a church today, either 1 Samuel 4 or 1 Samuel 7 will be the hallmark of our experience and which would you prefer? Pride, sinfulness, half-heartedness, idolatry, despair, defeat, or humility, repentance, commitment, worship, hope? That's the choice. You see, either will we, we will be those who think they can tr- control God, who think they can call the shots, who presume that the Lord is pleased with us, and so face his judgment and disaster, Or we will be transformed into those who turn to him, who reject anything that gets in the way of serving him, who depend on him alone, and we will gain deliverance and rescue from him. Now it's going to be helpful if you can see the passage in front of you, do turn to it with me, it's page 277, and in particular have a look at verse 3 when you're there, because we get a great summary, I think, of the whole chapter Verse 3, Samuel said to the whole house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Great words, aren't they? Great words that speak of great repentance, of great rescue, and which point us to a great rescuer. So we're going to think about each of those In turn, see first, a great repentance. If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Asherahs and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only. Last week in chapters 5 and 6, we saw the Lord returning to his people, acting in the Philistine land so that the ark is delivered back to Israel. The Lord returning to his people. Well, Well, here we see the people returning to the Lord. And what does that look like, this great repentance? What does it mean to turn to the Lord? It's important for us to know, isn't it? Because repentance isn't just something that the non-Christian does when they first come to know Jesus. No, it's to be the ongoing process of our lives, always turning and returning to the Lord. So what is this great repentance? Well, look how it starts there in verse 2. It was a long time, 20 years in all, that the ark remained at kiriath Jerim, And all the people of Israel mourned and sought after the Lord. Great repentance starts with mourning. With mourning, but who's died? What have they lost that they're mourning here? The last time we saw mourning, there were people dead, sure enough. At the end of chapter 6, do you remember when the ark comes back to Israel, to Beth Shemesh? Uh, the people, they, they're casual and carefree with the Lord and they look at the ark wrongly, they look inside it and God strikes 70 of them down dead. Then they mourned. But why now? I think the key is that this mourning goes along with the fact that they sought the Lord, seeking after him. They were mourning because they realised that it was their relationship with the Lord that was dead. That's what they lost. They'd lost all the benefits of knowing him and being loved by him. So their life was empty. It was going nowhere. As a nation, they were still ruled by and plagued by the Philistines, as they always had been. They had no direction, no meaning, no purpose, no identity, because they were living without the Lord. Ever since the ark had returned and those 70 had been killed, they just stashed the ark away, out of sight and out of mind. And we know the ark is just a symbol of the Lord's presence. And so they banished him. They banished him from their lives too. And so life went on, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, until 20 years had gone by and nothing had changed, except for things that were worse. And so they mourned. At the end, at the end of chapter 6 they find that they can't live with God. Here at least they've realised that they can't live without him. But it took 20 years, 20 years to come to their senses. 20 years to see that the way that they were living, the false gods that they were worshipping didn't satisfy. 20 years to remember the Lord and to look for his help. Even though he wasn't absent, he'd arranged for the return of the ark, he'd raised a faithful priest, Samuel, to call the nation back to him. 20 years. 20 years. Uh, True repentance, it starts with mourning. And is that our attitude? Is it our attitude when we think of all those times when our thoughts and actions, our lives have been far from the Lord? When we haven't sought him, when we haven't known him? Do we realise that we cannot live without him? And that to do so is to live an empty existence, not fulfilled, without hope, without help. We need to be dissatisfied with living apart from God, dissatisfied with every day and every decision, lived without reference to him. We need to mourn those days as though we had been dead. And perhaps for you that's been decades. Decades even as a part of this church family, decades of professing to be a Christian, to be part of God's people. And yet like the Israelites, those are empty years as you look back on them. Because you've never sought him. Not really. We need to mourn and to seek the Lord today. True repentance, it starts with mourning. It doesn't stop there though, does it? Uh, It moves on into action. And so in in verse 3 that we've looked at, we see that it means ridding ourselves of idols. If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, says Samuel, rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only in verse 4 they did the Israelites put away their bowls and Ashtoreths and serve the Lord only rid yourselves of foreign gods you see their problem was divided loyalty, divided affection for God, we thought about that a bit last week with the Philistines bringing the ark of the Lord next to Dagon in their temple the Lord and other gods, other priorities but that mustn't be the way, must it, because the Lord demands all of our hearts he wants us to serve him only, with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. But so often he doesn't get that, does he? I don't know for sure what your attitude is to paying taxes, uh, but I imagine that for most of us here, there's a general willingness. You don't mind paying into the central pots, but you don't want to pay any more than, than you need to. And uh, understand that there's a whole army of people that you can employ to, to help you make sure just that very fact that uh, not one penny more than is necessary uh, gets paid. Well, see, I think our danger is that we think the same way about serving God. We want to do it. We know that we should do it. But we want to do whatever is the minimum, whatever is the minimum that will keep God happy or, or that will ease our conscience. Perhaps just enough so that uh, we can look around and say, well, I do my bit at church. I do more than most people even. But when the demands increase, when serving the Lord becomes sacrificial, inconvenient, embarrassing, making us stand out from those around us, well, then it's too much. And so we become unnoticeable. But now we're to put aside our gods, whatever they may be, Possessions, pleasure, power, popularity. We're to serve the Lord with all our hearts. Just finally on that point, note that that means we will be standing out. We will be noticeable. Baal and Ashtoreth that are mentioned here, those are the Canaanite gods. The people who are living around the Israelites. Excuse me, a little shock for you there. No, if they've started to worship the gods of the people around them, it's because they're blending in, isn't it? Following the same gods, sharing the same values as the culture around them. And yet there in verse 4, they, they turn away and they say, no, we will be different. The Lord alone, with all our heart. Well, are we different? Are we different here? How does our diary for the coming week show that we're different from those who we live near, those we work with, how should it show those things? How does our next itemised bank statement show that we're different? How should it? When the church is different, things will happen. When we are the same, very little happens. Serve the Lord with all your heart. True repentance, then, it involves mourning, it involves getting rid of idols, And next it involves confession. Verse 5. Samuel said, assemble all Israel at Mizpah and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted and there they confessed. We have sinned against the Lord. Now, of course it involves confession. Of course repentance involves confession. Perhaps that's the first thing that we would think of. How can we turn to the Lord without saying sorry for the way we've ignored him? How can we mourn our broken relationship with him unless we seek his forgiveness? How can we get rid of idols without confessing those idols to the true God whom we serve? It's an obvious element and yet still I find these verses very challenging in two particular ways. First is the earnestness of their confession on that day. You see, for them, confession was the first thing that they wanted to do when they gathered together. The first thing on their minds, isn't it? How often do we come into church on a Sunday? How often do we wake up in bed in the morning and think, I must say sorry to God. I must seek his forgiveness. I must start the day with my relationship with him right. I confess, for me it's not often. And then they take their time over it, don't they? Drawing water and pouring it out, fasting. That alone shows that it took them a whole day. How does that compare with us? And then there's just the starkness of their prayer. We have sinned against the Lord, is all they say. I wonder if when I pray, I'm too quick to jump to the cross. Too quick to, when asking forgiveness, to, to jump to the source of that forgiveness. And too slow to dwell on and lament my sin. Now they are earnest as they confess that day. And the second thing that challenges my thinking is that they confess together. It is a nation assembled in one place saying we have sinned against the Lord. And yet almost always my confession is about me and me alone. Not about us. Not about us as God's people gathered in this place. And yet I know that when Jesus taught his disciples, he said, say this, uh, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. I was great at the church prayer meeting on Wednesday, if you were there, we spent a bit of time confessing together as a church family. If you weren't there, do come next time. It's a great thing to do, but I found it hard. Because I'm not even used to trying to identify the ways in which we corporately fall short of living wholeheartedly for God the ways in which we together follow idols but it is to be part of true repentance it means earnest confession it means corporate confession as well as individual and then finally here true repentance means having a total dependence on God see there in verse 7 When the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. And when the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. They said to Samuel, do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Now this, I think, is where we see the strongest transformation from chapter 4. You see, there it was the Philistines who were afraid. Afraid of the Ark of the Lord when they heard that it had come into the Israelite camp. Uh, By contrast, the Israelites were proud, overconfident, thinking that God would do for them whatever they told him, thinking they could manipulate him into fighting for them. Not so now. They've learnt that lesson. Now the Israelites are afraid. And they cry out to the Lord for rescue. In chapter four, they don't even ask or bother to ask Samuel to come along. Here they plead with him to ask God for his help and not to stop. They know they can't survive without him. They know they need his mercy. And so they come before him. It's total dependence. That's what true repentance is like. It's what you and I need to start the Christian life. It's what we need every day as we go on as Christians. That we would mourn every moment lived apart from God. That we would get rid of those idle idols which do nothing for us and serve only to take us away from our amazing God. That we would confess our sins in earnest together and that we would depend on God for everything. Great repentance. But then the passage goes on and it shows us great rescue as well. You see, if the attitude of the Israelites is transformed, so too is God's response where last time he inflicted heavy defeat on his people, killing 30,000 of them in one day. Well, this time he brings victory. An amazing victory at that. Have a look at verse 10. The Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle, but that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. It's a great fulfilment of, of Hannah's prayer. Just flick back a couple of pages to chapter 2. This is Hannah, Samuel's mother, who when she dedicates him, prays this, verse 9, halfway through. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. See, God defeats his enemies. He thunders against them just as he does at this battle, and see what Hannah wants us to learn from it. It is not by strength that one prevails. Not by our strength, not by Israel's strength, but by the Lord's strength. That's what we need, that's why we need to depend on him totally. He's more powerful than any enemy we will face, greater than any battle in which we will be engaged He won them total victory on that day. And it lasted, didn't it? Verse 13, back in chapter 7. The Philistines were subdued and did not invade Israelite territory again. Throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against them. And as it goes on, that means that they enjoyed peace and the promised land was restored to them. No wonder Samuel erects that stone as a reminder for generations to come and says, thus far has the Lord helped us. Well, it's a bit of a strange way to put it, isn't it? Thus far has the Lord helped us. It's not saying, I don't think, uh, thus far we're okay, but who knows about tomorrow. That's not the sense of it. No, instead he's saying, up until this point, the Lord has been helping us. And that's an amazing thing to say, because it means that chapter 4 is just as much a part of God's rescue as chapter 7 is. Thus far, up until this point... You see, when God deliberately humbled his people, that was part of his rescue. When he deliberately judged his people so that they would return to him, so that he would deliver them. That's all part of that rescue. And it's the same for us, isn't it? The Lord can use the difficult times, the desperate times, to help us. He does use them, He promises to. It is a great rescue. And we could take more time uh, here to think about how it relates to us today, how the Lord defeats our enemies, how he brings peace to our lives, how he ensures his promise for us. Uh, but I think it will be helpful if we do that by thinking, not just of the great rescue itself, uh, but also the great rescuer that we see in this passage. Because really it's Samuel, isn't it, who is central to all that goes on who is central to the relationship between the Lord and his people. It's actually Samuel that's the biggest difference between this chapter and chapter 4. Chapter 4, he's not even there. Here, he's there every step of the way. And in many ways, Samuel points us forward to Jesus. He's like a prototype of the real thing to come. And so as we consider his role on this day, well, we see Jesus' role in our lives today. And we see how this great rescue is achieved by our great rescuer. So briefly, uh, there are four things. Firstly, Samuel preaches repentance. We've seen that already, haven't we? Back in in verse 3 there. It was Samuel who called the nation back to God. He did it on this day, but my guess is that he'd been doing it for all of those 20 years of darkness in Israel's history. He preaches repentance. He says, return to the Lord." Give up your idols. Come to him. Serve him. And that is true of Jesus as well, isn't it? Do you remember how he began his public ministry in Mark 1, 15? He goes into Galilee and proclaims, The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Whatever else you believe about Jesus, know this. He calls on us to Repent. This sort of repentance, this great repentance and all that it involves, he says to us today, turn back to God. Turn to him and serve him with all your heart. Well then next, Samuel prays to the Father. It's striking here in verse 8, isn't it? The Israelites don't pray to the Lord themselves. No, they ask Samuel to do it. And he does, and in verse 9 we're told that the Lord answered him. Samuel prays to the Father. Now, as Christians today, we are much more blessed than the Israelites were on this day because we live in the time when God's Spirit has been poured out on his people and we can each pray directly to the Father in a way that the Israelites back then just couldn't. But let's also remember that Jesus himself intercedes for us today. Hebrews 7 says this, Jesus lives forever forever He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. See, it was great to have Samuel on your side on this day. There, praying to the Lord as they went into battle. But the time would come when Samuel wasn't there anymore. Jesus is so much better. He he will live forever. He has a permanent priesthood. He is always there interceding for us he will never tire he pleads on our behalf and the victory that he can win for us is even greater it was great to have Samuel on that day as they went into battle but Jesus we're told is able to save completely those who come to God through him save not just for for a battle but for our our entire lives our eternal lives that relationship with God which is broken and that we should mourn now restored fully thanks to him he preaches repentance, he prays to the Father next he presents a sacrifice Sarah there in verse 9 uh, Samuel's whole prayer is, is based around offering up this lamb as a sacrifice to the Lord a, a sacrifice because of the sins that they'd already confessed a sacrifice that acknowledged that blood was needed a sacrifice that the Lord accepts wonderfully as he answers Samuel But of course we see the same again with Jesus, don't we? Only better because his sacrifice was of himself. The blood he shed came from his own veins. The blood that we remember as we share bread and wine later on in the service. A sacrifice that not only acknowledges that blood was needed for forgiveness, but that provides it once and for all. So that we can know today that the Lord accepts it. He presents a sacrifice. And then the final way in which Samuel points us to Jesus is that he provides leadership. That I think is what's going on at the end of the chapter there, verses 15 to 17. Samuel continued as judge over Israel all the days of his life and then he goes on tour, doesn't he? Uh, Judging as he goes. Now the word judge there, it has the same sense as in the book of Judges. It doesn't just mean handing out sentences for crimes. No, it means that he led Israel. He kept them on track with the Lord. So it is with the leader that God has raised up for us in Jesus. He doesn't just call us to repentance as a one-off at the beginning of the Christian life. No, he continues to lead us on. He leads us today. He's enthroned in heaven. And he continues to lead his people by his living word, which is alive amongst us. Lord Jesus is establishing his righteous rule in our lives. If we turn to him years ago, that is a glorious thing. But we should keep turning to him each day. Keep turning, keep trusting as the Lord Jesus leads us. He is our great rescuer. He achieves a great rescue for us and he calls us to great repentance. Repentance that transforms. Repentance that it transforms our sinful hearts and godless lives and turns us to serve the living and true God. And it transforms the Lord from being our awesome, holy enemy whom we cannot even approach to being our heavenly Father before whose throne we will one day stand forever. So let's pray.